I'm going to tell you that by far the hardest Sunday to get up for, and I'm not talking about getting up you know, from bed, but I'm talking about emotionally, mentally, physically to a certain extent, spiritually, the most difficult Sunday to get up for in the course of the year is this Sunday, today. It is the Sunday after Easter. It is the plight of every pastor to have to come back to reality the Sunday after Easter. I mean, for those of you that may not be as sensitive to that as, as maybe I am or the other pastors, I mean, just think about it. Over the last two weekends, we have had approximately, between the drama and Easter Sunday alone, about 4,000 people that have descended upon this campus. Right around 4,000. And between 13 and 1,400 were just here on Easter alone. And we had many people that responded to Christ. And then on Easter, everyone came in and they're excited. They're expecting. Their families are with them. Most people are dressed a little bit better than usual. And, and even those individuals that only come to church once a year, maybe twice a year if you throw in Christmas, even they tend to come to church a little more excited. They just, they just are here and they like it and then they leave and they always say, Reverend, it was good to hear you. I'll see you next year. You know, they think nothing of it. But they just, everyone's in a good mood on Easter. It's just a great time. Everybody's up. And then you come crashing down the next Sunday. You just can't live up to all that you've experienced, especially here over the last two weekends. You just can't Make it up. You can't live up, if you will, to that hype. And that's why most pastors, if they were completely honest and transparent with you, would say, we wish that every Sunday could be Easter Sunday. We wish that we could have that same excitement, that same passion, that same attendance. We just wish that everyone shared that same expectation every single Sunday and that we just had a wonderful time. It would make ministry so much easier. Wouldn't it be nice if every day of our lives was a special day? Wouldn't it be nice if every single day of your life had a thrill, had something exciting take place, that there was going to be some adventure, even if you didn't know what it was like, you just knew that every day was going to have an exciting adventure, and it was always going to be thrilled, it was always going to be sunshine, it was always going to be warm. Wouldn't it be just grand if life was like that. Many of you know that uh, back in February, Kathy and I went on a cruise, our first cruise, um, to the, uh, the Caribbean to celebrate our uh, 25th wedding anniversary. And we had a wonderful time, and I didn't really talk a lot about it when we got back, because I would never want to rub that into anybody's face, <laughs> you know. But we just didn't talk a lot about it. But what was interesting is after the cruise was over and we poured it again in Miami, we're waiting in line to disembark. And as we're waiting there, you know, everyone just looks sad and depressed. And it was so funny that just a little bit ahead of us, there was this one little boy and he looked up at his mother and he said, now mom, we are getting back on the boat Friday, right? And his heart broke when she says, no, honey, we're going back home. 
And then a few minutes later, a little boy behind us, he is crying like there is no tomorrow. And he says, but I don't want to go home. And we all laughed because he's just voicing what all of us are thinking. We're all sitting there saying, we don't want to go home either. We wish every day would be a cruise and that every day would be fun and every day would be exciting. It would just be nice if life could just be one thrill after another. But it is just that daily grind, that monotony of life that just gets so hard to deal with. And it gets harder to deal with the older that you get. If you're a student here today, I don't expect you to completely understand that because there's something about being young and you have no obligations. Every day is a holiday. Every night is Saturday night. For you as students, it's just a big game. But when you get older, there's obligations and there's responsibilities and there is just the hardships of life and navigating through it am i talking to anybody that knows what i'm speaking of today it's just the grind it's it's getting up every single morning knowing exactly what you're going to do and you know exactly what you're going to do tomorrow and you know what you're going to do next month and you know what you're going to be doing if the lord should tarry a year from now it's just the same record that keeps playing over over and over again, and it just sometimes is so monotonous, staying with the daily grind. The fact is that even in the uncertainty, there is a degree of certainty, which is to say that we know for certain that difficult times are going to come. We know for sure that we're going to be stressed out again. We know for sure that there are going to be issues that we're going to have to juggle and that we're going to have to deal with. We know for certain they're coming. We just don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know who's going to be involved. But you just wake up every morning and you thank God for a good day because you know one day it's not going to be as easy. It's like listening to the same record, playing the same song. It's just a different artist the next time it's sung. That kind of sometimes feel like that even as a pastor. Now, almost 20 years here, I'll sit down with someone and they'll say, Pastor Kurt, I know you've never heard anything like this before. And I'm just sitting in my chair thinking, no, I've heard this more than you could ever imagine. We would all like to think that our lives are that unique, but our lives really aren't that unique. It's just a different set of players, but it's the same record playing the same song. And that's exactly why Solomon, the wisest man that ever walked on the earth, said it this way in the book of Ecclesiastes. There is nothing new under the sun. That life is just repeating itself over and over and over and over again. There's a redundancy to life. And I'm not trying to depress you. I'm just speaking real to you. That's the way it is. There's just that grind that you have to deal with every single day. It's interesting is that the daily grind is something that we have to contend with even in our own personal relationship with the Lord. I mean, let's just be truthful. We would all like to live on a spiritual high all the time. Wouldn't it be great 
If we could bottle up what we experience at Easter, or we could bottle up what we experience at a service that we were really touched by, and just save it, and then throughout the course of the week, and the course of the month, we could just open the bottle up, and we could drink a little bit of it, or we could breathe in the aroma of it, and that every day would just have that thrill and that excitement. Wouldn't it be just great if every single day in our relationship with the Lord would be like summer Bible camp? I don't know how many of you ever went to summer Bible camp, but I went every single year, and it was so great because you have a hundred teenagers that are on the campground, and they all talk about God all the time, and they're singing all Christian songs, and they're all passionate about God. They come to the altar every night, and they dedicate their lives to the Lord, and I'm going to be in ministry, and one day I'm going to be a pastor, and one day I'm going to be an evangelist, and everybody's hopped up, and they say, this is going to be the best year of my life, and then Monday comes. You know what I'm saying? It's that grind. Wouldn't it be nice if every day was like summer Bible camp? That every day was like that retreat where your life was really changed. Wouldn't it be great if every day in our walk with the Lord was like that concert where we heard a song that to this day we still sing when we get discouraged? Wouldn't it be great if every day was like that day we heard that special speaker give that message that really spoke to our heart or was like that missions trip that we were on or that healing that I experienced or some powerful experience that I had in a great service one day. But inevitably, we all come crashing back to earth and reality eventually and have to grind it out. We got to get back to marriage we got to get back to raising children, back to work, back to the struggles that we experience in the family, back to the personal struggles that we all have to endure at one point or another in our lives. Wouldn't it just be better if every single day of our walk with the Lord would be an adventure, would be a peak, would be a high, would be some miraculous or some supernatural event? It would make it so much easier, we would think. You know, I've really been thinking about this over the last couple of months, and I've just been kind of chomping at the bit, ready to share this, and I knew that I was going to be doing it right out of Easter. And rarely do I know that far in advance, but, but this has really been something in my heart, really from the beginning of the year, but it really seemed to come to a head when we started our vacation a couple of months ago. Kathy and I were just sitting in a cafe there in Miami, right on South Beach, and we were just talking, and I I said to Kathy, you know, at my age, at 48, I just have this drive in me, this urge to really get my hands in something big. I just really want to do something that, if you will, is larger than life. I just, I just feel like sometimes I'm coasting and I, I feel like I've got the wisdom now and I still have that youthful passion within me that I just want to do something big and large. I, I want to be a part of that. But I'm constantly reminded by the Holy Spirit that it's being faithful in the day-to-day grind that God has called me to. And it's not fun. It's not thrilling. Because we all want to live in that high. We always want to live in the up. And we just don't really like having to be faithful day on day. Week after week. Month after month. Especially when life doesn't always seem to have much variety to it. 
I really have been thinking about how do we survive the daily grind, of how we take all of the lessons that we learn in those very high moments in our walk with God and apply them to the day-to-day struggles that we all experience. And the reason this is so important is because, again, it's so easy for us to look at a portion of Scripture or maybe an entire chapter in the Bible, like Hebrews chapter 11, where all the heroes of the Old Testament really are listed out, and we look at their lives and their tremendous testimony of faith, and we say, wow, wouldn't it be great to have been like them? Can you imagine being Noah? Can you imagine being Moses? Can you imagine being David? And seeing all the miracles that they did. I mean, it would be easy to walk with God if I had all those miracles. It would be a cakewalk if I could wake up and say, God, use me in such dramatic ways. We're really in the hardship. You know, anybody could serve the Lord if you just saw the miracles and the signs and the wonders. It's easy for them. Really? How well do you read your Bible? Because you know, if you really examine those heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and you go through their lives from the moment that they are introduced to us to the moment that they go home to be with the Lord, you'll find that there were relatively few miracles that they actually saw. And in between them were years, and in some cases, decades of the daily grind. We don't think of it. We romanticize these powerful miracles and completely ignore that they were married, that they had children, that they had jobs that they had to get up and do, that they had to go through the daily struggles, the daily grind of life. And as you begin to examine their lives, you find more often than not, they failed during the daily grind in spite of the great miracles that they saw. You know, I love miracles, and who wouldn't want to see a miracle? Who wouldn't want to see something supernatural? But listen, they don't really tend to last that long, even those that have seen it. Like, think about Noah for a moment. I mean, Noah was a great man. Can you imagine being Noah? One day God speaks to Noah and says, judgment is coming, and then gives him the schematics for building an ark. And he commits his life for over a hundred years to building this ark. And judgment comes. But God is faithful and preserves Noah and his family and all of the animals in that ark. Finally, judgment is lifted. The waters, they begin to recede. And God rests them safely in Mount Ararat. They get out. God makes a covenant with Noah and then seals the covenant with a rainbow in the sky and says, every time you see this rainbow, for as long as the earth exists, it'll be a reminder to the whole world that I will never again judge it with a flood of water. And he comes in this great powerful moment. Noah is feeling so up in God. But then, Noah starts tending a vineyard, decides to start in the wine trade, gets drunk, exposes himself to his son, his son mocks him, and a curse enters back into the world. And the cycle begins again. Why? Because Noah didn't see any powerful works of God? No. Because Noah did not know how to be faithful in the day-to-day grind of life. Think of Moses. 
Now Moses saw some tremendous miracles. God, God spoke to Moses out of a burning bush. And then he throws down his walking stick. It becomes a snake. He picks it back up again. It becomes a walking stick. God tells him to go to Pharaoh. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, let the people of God go. And Pharaoh says, who is your God that I would listen to him? God then sends a series of plagues upon Egypt, all to break the heart of the stubborn Pharaoh. Pharaoh finally breaks and says they can go, and he lets them go. But as soon as he does that, he gathers up his army to pursue him, to bring him back to slavery again. The children of Israel come to the brink of the Red Sea, and Moses stands there, and in one of the greatest acts of faith, he says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. God opens up the Red Sea, the children of Israel walk across on dry ground, and as the enemy pursues, God brings the waters back down and drowns out the Egyptian army in one one stroke. Then God, for the next several years, is going to lead the children of Israel as a cloud by day, as a fire by night. He gives them manna from heaven. He gives them, you know, water from a rock. It is just one miracle after another. And you would eventually begin to think, man, how easy it would have been to serve the Lord. Really? Because listen to what happens in Numbers chapter 11 and verse number 1. And the people complained in their hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Misfortunes? What are you talking about? You just watched God open up the Red Sea. You just saw water come from a rock. You saw bread called a manna come down from heaven. And now you've got misfortunes. The people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Unbelievable. These are men and women who just saw the Lord deliver them from Egypt. They saw 11 plagues come upon the people of Egypt, yet they were not touched by any of them. They've seen God feed them with manna from heaven, water from a rock, and they're still complaining. Doesn't that sound like us? I mean, we would all love to think we're better than that, but the reality is many times we have seen God deliver us in the past, but then the next problem comes and we're complaining, God, where are you? I've heard so many people through my life that have said, you know, if the Lord would just answer this one request, if the Lord would just answer this one prayer, I would never ask him for anything else. That is such a lie. You know it as well as I do that the miracle you just see will last till tomorrow or at least to your next struggle and you'll be complaining with the best of them again. He goes on, he says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving and the people of Israel also wept again. And they said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. And Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased, and Moses said to the Lord, this is one of the greatest pity parties you will ever find in Scripture. Moses says to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant, and why have I not found favor in your sight, that you would lay the burden of all this people on me? Listen to this. Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth, that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers. You know what he's saying? He's saying, they're not my kids. Why did you give them to me? Why do I have to be the one that has to carry them? This is terrible. Why did you put this burden on me? 
Where am I going to get meat to give to all of these people? For they weep before me and they say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. I love this. If you will treat me like this, kill me now. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. You know what he's saying? He's saying if I've got to live another minute with these people, I'm going to go out of my mind. I'm going to do something I'm going to regret. I'm going to say something I wish I had never said. So please kill me now so that I don't look like an idiot in front of them. This is the man that just saw the Red Sea open. This is the man that just saw manna fall from heaven. Water come from a rock. And he's already complaining. Day to day, grind on and on. And you know what's sad? Is that many of you know it wasn't long after this that he strikes the rock a second time in his unbelief and hardness of heart and he forfeits the opportunity to go into the promised land. Why? Because he didn't see the Red Sea open enough? How many times do you have to see the Red Sea open to know that God is in control? No. He didn't know how to apply the principles learned at the Red Sea to the daily grind of life. Think of David. David didn't see many miracles compared to these other men. But David had a very significant moment happen to him when he was 16 years old that should have defined him for the rest of his life. And that, of course, was when God delivered Goliath into his hands. And that should have shaped him. And it should have caused him to be faithful for the rest of his days. Yet you fast forward roughly 34 years. Now David is about 50. He is now the king of Israel. God has given him rest on all sides. The kingdom has expanded. David is literally ushering it into one of its golden ages. And so David could just sit there and bask in what God has done. Instead we read this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings... Go out to battle. David, who was a king, sent Joab, who was the commander of the armies. But David remained in Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. So David sent messengers and took her. And she, Bathsheba, came to him and he slept with her. And this would be the infamous affair that David had with Bathsheba and his life would never be the same again. Was he forgiven? Yes. Was he restored? Absolutely. But you know as well as I do that David was never the same man after that event. In fact, my personal belief, David died a very sad man because he looked back and saw how it had devastated his household. A direct result of his unwillingness to be faithful in the daily grind. Why did he fail? Was it because he didn't slay enough giants when he was a 16-year-old? No. Because he didn't know how to take the principles he had learned in those high moments and apply them to the daily grind. He was unfaithful. Jesus said some very powerful words about this very thing we're talking about. It's in Matthew chapter 24. It's verse number 10. He says, And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. You know, there is a reason that the Bible uses words like endure. 
And it's not to paint you the picture that every day is going to be sunny and warm and there's no clouds in the sky. It is to remind us that life can be a grind. That life can be difficult. That life can be wearisome. And he's saying you've got to learn to endure. You have to learn how to bear down in the daily grind and say, I'm going to be faithful to God no matter what the day may bring in Jesus' name. You see, it's not how many miracles you see in your life that will define you as a Christian. You'll be defined by a Christian as a Christian, by your faithfulness to God in the daily grind, in the monotony of life, in the willingness to be consistent in Jesus all the days of your life. So today, we're going to begin a new series called The Grind. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be breaking down a portion of Scripture that addresses this very issue. And what's interesting is that of all the places, it actually comes from the book of Hebrews. And if you're new here today, the reason I say it that way is because the last five weeks we've been in a series called Better, and that has all come from the book of Hebrews, and now we're going to spend the next four weeks in the book of Hebrews again, but it's going to be, though the same book, a different angle. And we're going to look at just one portion of Scripture, and each week we're going to look at some of those verses, and we're going to address this issue of being faithful in the daily grind. But before we get into this, I want to remind you again of who the book of Hebrews was written to and the circumstances under which it was written because it really does provide the context for what we're going to be talking about. Remember that the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians. These are Jews living in the first century who embraced Christ as the long-awaited and prophesied Messiah. Now, that may not sound like a big deal to us in the 21st century, but it was a huge deal and a huge sacrifice in the first century. If you were a Jew living in the first century and you embraced Christ as a Messiah, as we've said over the last several weeks, you would have immediately been excommunicated from your family and from your synagogue, which is similar to our church. Which means that embracing Christ as Lord and Savior, you would immediately have lost all of your family and all of your friends. To them, they would have no more dealings with you. In fact, to them, you would be dead. They would say, you are now dead to us. They would have no more dealings with you. If you were a first century Jew and you embraced Christ as the Messiah, your business would have immediately been confiscated. All of your possessions would have been seized. You would have had your children taken from you or you would have been taken from your children. You would be publicly humiliated, abused. You would be publicly tortured and in extreme cases you could even be martyred for your faith in Jesus Christ. So to say that these men and women are severely persecuted is an understatement. They are under intense persecution. And for this very reason, many of them are ready to just give up. They're weary. They're wore out. Some of them are contemplating abandoning their faith in Christ completely and returning to Judaism. Some of them have already done it. Because they just don't know how to survive the daily grind. The fact that getting up every morning may cost them their life. They didn't know at that point how to make it. And then the author of Hebrews sits down 
led by the Holy Spirit, and writes this letter of encouragement, the letter that we call the book of Hebrews. And he actually is writing them to tell them, don't give up, hang on, God is going to be faithful. And he addresses these days that are not miraculous, that are not supernatural, but rather are painful and difficult in how you make it in the day-to-day grind. So today we're going to start, and as we do, we're going to look at how we can prepare for the long haul. Because I'm in it for the long haul. I'm in it for the marathon. How many of you are in this to make it? How many of you are in it to win it? I mean, this is, this is it. Like, you are in this for the long haul, for the marathon. But what you need to understand is that in order to make it over the long haul, there are some things that you've got to be intentional about if you're going to make it. No one is going to be passive if they're going to make it. There are some things you've got to be intentional about and recognize if I'm going to make it until I pass from this life, then there are some things that I have got to be intentional about every single day. And that's what the author of Hebrews is going to introduce us here in the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews. It's actually a very powerful portion of scripture because it represents a serious break, if you will, in the letter. The author of Hebrews has just spent 11 chapters really unpackaging some profound doctrinal truths, but now he is going to apply them to the daily grind. And you see, I think that that's where the disconnect often comes within our faith, is that we sit here and we hear the Word of God taught, but we don't apply it to our daily grind. People have their spiritual life, and then they have, if you will, their secular life. Folks... We are not a dichotomy, if you will, of personality. We are one person. And what we want to do is integrate the Word of God into our daily lives so that in everything we do, we are honoring Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And that is incumbent upon you. I don't have the luxury of standing up here and applying it for you in every situation. I try to make examples and illustrations as best I can, but certainly I'm not going to be able to be exhaustive here. So it's incumbent upon you while you're hearing the Word of God to say, how does this apply to my finances? How does this apply to my marriage? How does this apply to raising my children? How does this apply to the struggle that I'm experiencing at work right now. Because if you're just hearing truths but you're not applying it, then you are the hearer of the word, not a doer of the word. And James says, your faith is actually in vain. So this is the author of Hebrews bringing all of these doctrinal truths to the daily grind. And with that in mind, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. To Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to begin at verse number 1. If you don't have your Bible, that's fine. We've got it on the screen. But we're going to read it here together. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Therefore. And again, the word therefore is tying what was previously said to what is about to be said. When he starts out, therefore, he's saying, in light of what was just said, this is what we do now. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and he's talking about the people that were listed in Hebrews chapter 11. These are all the great heroes of the faith in chapter 11. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses from chapter 11, let us right now also, as they did, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And with those words, the author of Hebrews introduces to you and I four things that we have to do in order to be prepared for daily living, for surviving the grind of life. But before I actually get to that, though, I just want to draw your attention to what he says there at the very beginning. He's saying, seeing that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, this has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about. And I don't typically do this. But there has been something that I have wanted to address for a while, but I haven't had the opportunity. So while I have it, I'm going to seize it right now. Because I want to clear up any confusion that some of you might have. There is great butchery that takes place on that particular verse. And people have taken it out of context for years. Because they read that portion of scripture, seeing that we are surrounded by such a great a cloud of witnesses, to mean that right now all of our dead loved ones who died in faith in Jesus Christ are now in heaven looking down upon us right now. Every once in a while you hear that at a funeral. I'm sure that Graham is looking down on us right now. I'm sure that Pop-Pop is looking down on us right now. Folks, this scripture is not saying that, nor is there one scripture in the entire word of God that even remotely suggests that our dead loved ones are looking down upon us. God wouldn't do that to them. It's kind of creepy if you ask me. That is not what they're doing. Listen, they are looking at Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of their faith. They don't want to look down on this world that they have left behind. And by the way, we don't pray to dead people. Because dead people aren't praying for you. There is one intercessor between man and God. His name is Jesus Christ. So listen, the dead in Christ are with him today. So there is no one in heaven looking down upon you except Jesus Christ himself. Can you say amen to that? I just want you to be aware of that. What he is saying here when he says we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he's actually, maybe a better word that will help you is, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of testimony that it really, it's not them witnessing what we're doing. Their lives are a witness. Their lives are a testimony of the faithfulness of God working in their lives as they surrendered completely to Him. Think of a trophy case. When you walk into a high school or you walk into a college, you'll see a trophy case. And in that trophy case, there are trophies, there are medals, there are pennants, there are plaques with names on them, there are pictures. And what are those trophies there for? So that people looking can remember the past and say, you know what, maybe I could do that. Maybe our team will do it this year. It's meant to inspire you, to to really bring up within you a desire to do better, to solicit if you will, team spirit. And that's what Hebrews chapter 11 is. It is God's trophy case. It is God saying, look what I am able to do in men and women who are faithful and who are sold out to me. That is what he's saying here. 
So he's saying, in light of all that God was able to do through them, this is what we must do to survive the daily grind. Number one, lay aside every weight. Lay aside every weight. If you and I are going to survive the daily grind, we must first be willing to lay aside every weight that hinders us. Now before I break that down for you, let me just remind you that it says that we are to also lay aside every weight. That burden is upon us. We have to lay it aside. God does not lay it aside for us. And I am afraid that way too many Christians think that it is God's responsibility to take weight and sin from them. It is not God's responsibility. It is our responsibility. Here's what God says. I don't take those things from you. We come down to altars and we plead, God, take this sin from me. God, take this weight from me. And God says, no, you got it all wrong. I gave you my Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And He will empower you to do what you cannot do. But you have to tap into that power I've made available and lay aside the weight and lay aside the sin. God doesn't take that from us. That's our responsibility. We lay aside every weight. It is a personal, it is a decisive decision that every one of us have to make. Just as a runner makes a decision to lay aside every weight so that he can run in such a way that he might win, so we must be willing to cut from our lives anything that would hinder us from running the race in such a way that we might win as well. It's important for you to understand that he is not talking here about sins. It's not a matter of right or wrong or black and white here. He'll address that later. This is not about sin and righteousness. This is about what is beneficial and what is not beneficial. Can I just say this? As Christians, as Christ followers, our concern should not always be over whether it is sin or not. That's individuals that are just new to the faith. It should now be, if you're mature in the Lord, about what is benefiting my walk with God and what is not benefiting my walk with God. What is propelling me closer to Jesus, what is actually drawing me away from Him. Because not everything is sin. But just because it's not sin doesn't mean it's good for you. That's the point that he's making here. Let's be honest. The only reason that we ask that question in the first place, is it sin? Because you have those individuals that say, is it a sin to do this? Is it a sin to do that? You know what they're saying? I want to get as close to sin as I possibly can without stepping over that line. What we should be asking ourselves is, is this benefiting my relationship with God or is it hindering me? My relationship with the Lord. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 23. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And what sometimes is lost in this particular translation, but others pick up on, is that he's actually addressing something that the Corinthian Christians were saying. The Christian Corinthians were saying, all things are lawful for me. But Paul came in and said, yeah, but not all things are helpful to you. They were going around saying, all things are lawful for me. I can do anything. And Paul says, that's true. But not everything is building you up. Not everything is encouraging you in the faith. 
And what we have to realize, folks, is that just because we can do certain things doesn't mean we should do certain things. There are some things in our lives that are not wrong, but they are not helping us develop a passionate love for the Lord in Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that. Because for too long, some of you just say, I see nothing wrong with that. Well, it's not a matter of whether it's right or wrong. It's a matter, is it helping you? Is it propelling you closer to Christ? Or is it weighing you down and keeping you from being all that you can be in Jesus? Friendships would be a great illustration of that. Thank God for friends. And thank God for godly friends that, as Proverbs says, stick closer than brothers and sisters. You know, I never really understood the impact of that verse until I moved away from my home and I came to live here in foreign soil with people I had never known before. But now you have become family to me and you stick as friends closer than a brother. My family's 12 hours away from me. You are my brothers. You are my sisters. Some of you are spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers to me. Thank God for good friends that really encourage us in our faith. But folks, listen to me. Some of you have friends that are weighing you down and are not helping you at all in your walk with God. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. They're taxing you emotionally, mentally, spiritually, sometimes physically. You go to hang out with them because you want to have a good time, but you come back home exhausted. And you have to spend hours in prayer to kind of cleanse yourself from the conversations you've had and just how they dragged you down. Folks, there comes a time where you say, I love you, I'll be friendly with you, but I can't be your friend because it's literally dragging me down and my walk with God is infinitely more important than any other relationship. And I know that's hard, but there just comes a time you've got to do that, folks. Facebook. Can we talk for a minute? Listen, I'm not knocking Facebook. I'm on Facebook. I use it in a proper way, at least I think so. I'm not saying that Facebook is wrong. I call it amoral. It's not moral. It's not immoral. It's just what you use it for that becomes moral or immoral. And for some of you, you don't even realize that you're putting your soul in jeopardy over Facebook. Because literally it is draining you of any real joy in the Lord. And you say, well, I don't understand that. Well, let me just tell you. Some of you will post. And I don't know this other than I just, I know in talking to people. I don't know who's doing it. But you post something on Facebook. And then you spend the rest of the day trying to find out who liked what you posted. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Those of you that do, just stay with me, okay? They, you, you spend a whole day trying to find out who liked what you posted. And then you start looking at who didn't like what you posted. And then spend the rest of the day worrying about why they didn't like what you posted. And then you start coming up with a plan of how not to like what they posted. Because they didn't like what you posted. And you're literally just weighed down. You don't even realize that it is taking the life right out of you. It's not helping you. It's not benefiting you whatsoever in your walk with God. Entertainment. Listen, there's nothing wrong with sitting and watching a good movie. 
This past week, I watched, I, I watched a special that I think was on years ago, and I don't watch HBO. I don't get HBO, but I watched, somebody had recommended to me, John Adams. Did anybody ever see the, the document, docudrama, John Adams? I love history anyway. It was fantastic. Listen, I'm not knocking that sometimes it's good to sit and watch a movie, but can I just tell you, be careful about what you watch. Because some of you are battling thoughts in your mind. You're thinking, why do I look at people that way? And why do I? Because you're watching it on TV. I don't want to talk like that. Why do those words come out of my mouth? Because you listen to it in, the mu- in your music. Folks, you might be able to do it and it's not sin, but it's weighing you down. How you were raised, how I was raised. Listen, I love my mom and dad, but it wasn't until I got out of my parents' house that I began to realize not everything I learned growing up is right. I love my mom and dad, and most of their principles I apply, but there's some things I just recognize as a child of God, that's not going to help me in my walk. You can't let your cultural influence, you can't let the way you were raised dictate the way that you live now. You're a child of God. And you've got to be willing to cut free from those things to be the person you were called to be in Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul put it this way, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Listen, at the end of the day, living a day-to-day life is a war. I don't know how else to describe it. Staying faithful to God in the world we live in today is a battle. It is a war. And the Bible says no one engaged in that warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. The more attachment you have to this world, the harder it is for you to run successfully. I I don't want to belabor this point. I just want to throw this one thing out to you. In my studies, he is talking about runners in the Olympic Games or the Isthmus Games. You know, this was Greek times and they had a lot of games that they participated in. And he's talking about runners in a long distance run. And literally, they wore as little as they could. They were almost nude when they ran. They only wore enough to cover up enough. Because they wanted to make sure there was nothing that would hinder them from running as quickly as they could so that they might win. Folks, listen. The bare minimums of all that we need in this world are all that's necessary. And the more you accumulate, the harder it is for you to run. Folks, lay aside every weight. Number two, lay aside the sin that clings Now, unlike the weight that is not sinful but slows us down, these are actually sins. These are rebellious actions that cause us to fall. And you need to understand that the more you fall, the greater likelihood you are moving yourself to falling away. One translation says, the sin that so easily ensnares us. Some translations even say that, that so easily beset us. It really doesn't matter how you translate it. These represent pet sins in our lives. You know what I'm talking about. The ones that we know are wrong. The ones we know are destructive. But we like them. And we want them around. And we refuse to slay them once and for all. 
You know, we would love to just say that we hate sin, but the reality is there's some of us, we like what we do. And it's easy to give up the ones that we're not really interested in, but there's some that we really like. And every once in a while, we'll patronize God and we'll say, I'm sorry. You know, they're, they're the people that repent with one eye open, you know. You know, Lord, I, uh, I really hate that sin. Father, forgive me, I'll never do it again. You know, we know we shouldn't do it. We know that it's destroying us, but I like a little bit of gossip once in a while. And you know, every once in a while, I like to get on the internet and go places I shouldn't be. And every once in a while, I like engaging in a conversation with someone that I know I shouldn't be having. Folks, you're playing with fire. And if you're going to survive the long haul, if you're going to make it in the daily grind, you've got to become self-aware. And say, you know what, there are things that easily beset me, that get me off course. There are some places I can't go anymore. There are some things I can't do anymore. There are people I can't hang with anymore. Because every time I go in that direction, I know what happens. And I am not concerned about anything else but my relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to lay aside the sin. You know, one translator, as I was studying this week, said that, that the image that comes from this sin that clings, or this besetting sin, the way that it's constructed in the original Greek language, it reminds one of the ring of wild beasts in the jungle that encircle the campfire at night, each ready to pounce upon their careless victim. And you've seen it in a documentary, you may have seen it even portrayed in a movie where they're in the jungle or they're in the wild and they'll build a fire. And they'll get as close to that fire as they can because they know that the predators that are just outside of the camp are waiting. But they'll never approach the fire, they're afraid of the fire. But every once in a while someone will drift a little bit further away from the fire and the predator will pick them off. Does that sound like anything to you? Because I'm reminded immediately of what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Listen, there is a very real enemy today. And he is walking about like a roaring lion. But the good news is, if you stay close to the fire of the Holy Spirit... The devil's not afraid of you, but he is certainly afraid of Jesus. And he cannot come near to you as long as you remain close to Jesus. But some of you, for your pet sins, are drifting. And if you drift too far, he'll devour you. Lay aside those pet sins and live for Jesus. Third, run with endurance. Run with endurance. Believe it or not, that word endurance in the original language has so many descriptives there. It literally means voluntary, aggressive, patient endurance. I love it. It's, I've never had a, a Greek word that had so many descriptive words attached to it. It's voluntary, aggressive, patient endurance. It's voluntary in that God will not run this race for you. You have to choose to run this race yourself.
It is aggressive in that you must be aggressively pursuing the Lord. No one can wake up and just passively say, I'm a Christian. If you're going to make it, you've got to aggressively go after God daily in Jesus' name. And it takes patience. You know, patience is one of those things. It's just, you know, we pray, Lord, give me patience now. You know? People say, I'm praying for patience. Be careful what you're praying for. Because I'll tell you, and we've said this for years, God does not give anybody patience. He gives you situations to be patient in. So every time you say, Lord, help me to be patient, God says, okay, I guess I want some more to deal with. Because the only way you learn patience is by going through situations you've got to be patient in. You know, I'm not a long-distance runner, Obviously. But I have a lot of respect for long-distance runners because they have got to be some of the most patient people on the planet. To grind out mile after mile after mile and cross that finish line, what an incredible task. He cannot, she cannot afford to be impatient because if you get impatient, you might start speeding up. And if you go too fast, you'll run out of gas. If you become impatient, sometimes you lose interest and you fall back. And the same case is with you and I. Because sometimes it's going to be easy to follow the Lord. Sometimes it's, going to, it's just going to feel like everything is great and you're going to want to speed up, but you're going to burn out. And then other times it's going to be difficult and you're going to lose interest and fall back. Listen, the best advice I can give you as a pastor is find a pace and then stick with it and be consistent and just say, I'm not going to let anything move me. When you wake up in the morning, your body may say, listen, you don't need to read the Bible today, but you get up and say, no, I'm not going to listen to my body. I'm going to do what's right. You read that Bible even if you don't feel like it and you journal what God is saying. Because it is the meat of your soul. When you don't feel like praying, you keep praying. And just say, it doesn't matter how I feel. I'm going to do this. I'm going to set the pace. And I'm going to go after God. When you get up on Sunday morning and you just feel like hitting the snooze and say, I'm going to watch it by the web. Listen, you say, no, I'm going to get out of my bed because I was glad when they said, let's come unto the house of the Lord God Almighty. Listen, get that pace. Stay consistent. Life is not going to always be easy, but God will bring you through. In Jesus' mighty name. And then finally, look unto Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look intently. Keep your eyes on him. Let him be your focus. That's what's being said here. Don't fix your eyes on people or circumstances or what you've gone through, what you're going through, what you may go through. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Isn't it interesting that he, he says, consider the people of Hebrews chapter 11. Consider their stories, but look unto Jesus. Why? Because all the people in Hebrews chapter 11 failed. But Jesus never fails. He is perfect. Keep your eyes on him because he's the founder or the author of this faith journey and more importantly, he is the perfecter of faith which means that not only did he finish perfectly but he also promises to make us perfect if we stay faithful to him. That's why Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
How many of you are thankful that he has started a good work in you? Well, amen. The good news is that he's able to perfect it if you stay true. And then he goes in, and I I know time is kind of slipping away, but he gives us this example of how Jesus did it. He says, looking unto Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, think about that, who for the joy set before him, before him, say that with me, before him, say it again, before him. What is, you know, you say, well, what's the significance? There was no joy in Jesus being crucified. The joy was set before him. And that is so important. There was no joy in Jesus being beaten to within an inch of his life. There was no joy in being nailed to the cross. There was no joy hanging on that cross for hours in excruciating pain. No joy in that at all. The joy was set before him. The joy was knowing in his mind, one day I'm coming out of this tomb, I'm going to ascend to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and I will intercede for all who follow me afterward. It is for that joy that right now I endure the pain, that I endure the struggle. It wasn't like Jesus is is up there with joy in his heart as he's dying, no. For the joy set before him, and that is so important, don't fall into the happiness trap. You know what I'm talking about? The people that say, God just wants me to be happy. He doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. God didn't put you on this earth to pursue happiness. In fact, I'm going to tell you this. I love the Declaration of Independence. But I'm going to tell you, the pursuit of happiness is not only overrated, it's ungodly. Because everybody that pursues happiness is in selfishness. I've watched marriages end in divorce in the pursuit of happiness. I've seen people go into debt beyond what they could ever pay in the pursuit of happiness. I've seen people lose everything as a direct result of pursuing happiness. We pursue holiness. I'm going after a joy that is set before me, and I endure whatever comes my way. In Jesus' name who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He voluntarily, aggressively, patiently endured the cross, the agony of the cross for you and me, and never caved under the pressure, but survived the grinding up of his own body for you and I. And despised the shame. You know what despise means there? It means disregarded the shame. He disregarded the shame of the cross for the sake of being restored to God, of man being restored to God. Can you disregard the shame that comes in living a humble life? If you want to be humble, there's going to be shame involved with that. Can you disregard the shame to be a humble man? And he's now seated at the right hand of Almighty God. That is a plan for every one of us. That as we go through this life, it is for the joy that is set before us. It's the joy of knowing that one day we'll be with him, that we endure the cross right now. That we take up the cross that God has for us, and we deny ourselves and follow him. That we disregard the shame that comes in living a humble life until that day that we are seated at his right hand in Jesus' name. It's hard. But we're called to do it. And then he finishes with this, and we'll close. 
He says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The author of Hebrews says here, I know that you're going to grow weary. I know you're going to grow faint-hearted because life is difficult. So in those days when you feel like giving up, I want you to consider Jesus. I want you to consider that he endured such hostility from the hands of sinners, you can't even begin to imagine it. You say, how does this all apply to to my life? And again, I can't give you all the illustrations, but I can give you this. Listen, marriage is difficult. And sometimes we want to bail on a difficult marriage. And I want to be clear on this. Listen, God did not call us to stay in a marriage that is abusive where there's physical or even sexual abuse. And God has not called us to stay in a marriage where a a, a spouse has been continually unfaithful over and over and over again. I still don't necessarily believe that divorce is the best option, but we know there are exceptions. But let me just say this. In general, it doesn't matter how difficult the marriage is, God wants you to stay there. You need to know that nowhere in Scripture does it say that we can divorce for irreconcilable differences. Oh, I hit a nerve. You say, what does God want me to do? He wants you to be holy. He wants you to endure the cross that you've been bearing. That's hard. We don't want to hear that. But lest we grow weary and faint-hearted, we consider the one who gave his life for you and I. Knowing in our struggle that we have not resisted to the point of shedding blood, Aren't you glad you've never had to shed your blood to stay obedient to Almighty God? But he shed his blood so that you and I might be saved today. And what he's saying is, so that you won't grow weary, keep your eyes on Jesus who went through infinitely more than you will ever go through. And say, if he stayed faithful, I can make it too. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. Some of you didn't sign up for this. You signed up for sunny skies, warm weather, happy beach days every day. Nobody ever told you that if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow the daily grind. So lay aside every weight because it's going to be difficult enough. Lay everything that's not helping you because it's going to get rough ahead. Lay aside every sin because that'll make you fall. Run with patient endurance. Don't get too fast. Don't get too slow. Keep a steady pace no matter what happens. And above all else, keep your eyes on Jesus. He will see you through the daily grind in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Amen. Stand to your feet. Father, thank you for our time together. Let's stand. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be with all of my friends, my family today. Father, I pray that you'd speak to us throughout this series and that we would truly come to a place of understanding what it means to survive the daily grind of life.